This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Let's get ready to start our next or last presentation today, The Foundation of All Freedoms. Um, <clears throat> let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to study, contemplate the past, and see our role today. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us, your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst and speak through me, speak to us, and illuminate our minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in several of these presentations, I've gone back to a man named John Wycliffe as we begin, and with good reason. John Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, and as I mentioned in a previous presentation, it's not just because he translated the Bible into the language of the common people, um, like the first person to do that. Many of the stands that he took were far ahead of his time. And in this particular area we're going to cover tonight, I believe he was way ahead of his time. As I mentioned before, if, you, if you've not been there, this is his church in Lutterworth, England, or at least the church he was at for the last nine years of his life. And there's a memorial inside, sacred to the memory of John Wycliffe. And this is a painting that is there in the church and believed to be an artist's uh, depiction of what he looked like towards the later end of his life. Now, what I want to share with is his belief on the church, his belief on the doctrine of the church. He believed that the church should not be linked with the state. I mentioned this uh, this morning. He said the only alternative to relying on the support of the state and bring the change needed in the church was to send out preachers with the word of God. Additional to that, he believed that the church should be disendowed. What do you mean by that? It means the church should not be supported by the state. It should not be financially with the state. He condemned what he called the Caesarean clergy those who rendered their services to Caesar rather than to Christ, um, becoming little more. He basically said, if you're a preacher, you're just a civil servant. A priest, rather. You're just a civil servant. Why? Civil servants today, what are civil servants? They're the people that work for the government. He said, as a, as a priest back in the 1300s, as a priest, you're a civil servant. Why? Because you can't say anything against the rulers of the country or against the laws they're enacting, or against anything to do with morality that they may be enforcing. Why? Because they're paying your salary. And so he wanted a complete separation of the church from the state so that the church could be more pure. Um, he insisted that the church should be supported only by voluntary offerings. Now this in his day was revolutionary. Even today it's kind of revolutionary. As I mentioned this morning, I've got, a, I've got a cousin who is a Lutheran minister in Iceland. And she, it's, it's, Iceland's very progressive. She, um, she says, well, they're paid there by the government. The government pays them. It's just basically on tax dollars. And she told me that in their churches, they do not even collect offering. There's no tithing system. There's no offering system. There's not even like, you know, I mean, Adventism is standard. Anytime you get a group of Adventists together, we have an offering. But like, they don't even do offering in, in, in the Lutheran church in Iceland. It's just not even part of the culture. She said some churches leave a box at the back and they get a few, you know, coins thrown in every now and then. But if, if the government cut their support and there's people in the country arguing that we need to cut the support for the official church of the country because no one's going to church anymore, the church is dead. Like, they, they, they don't have a tithing system. They don't have an offering system. Now, John Wycliffe said, listen, the church has become corrupt because we're being paid by the state. We need to cut it. And he believed that the enormous wealth of the church had, is what had corrupted it. And he said, if we implement my, my, my belief, he said, we may lead to a loss of one-third of the clergy, but it would be less corrupt. True. Because the ones who are corrupt or the ones that are just doing a paycheck, they'll go. You'll be left with the ones who are really there because they want to be there. Um, and I think, you know, financial crisis is what purifies many institutions. Um, so this is what he stood for. Now, he was way ahead of his day. The church in England never implemented this, and they still have never implemented this, because even though today we live in a time where we have the Church of England, 
which is the Anglican Church, or you guys call it the Episcopalian Church over here. That church is pretty much doing what they did back then. The ministers are paid through official money that comes down from above. It's not through the offerings or the tithing system of the church. He said, John Wycliffe, let men introduced to the care of souls remember how it was with their predecessors in the years before Constantine. When with the master whose name they bear and with the apostles whom they esteem it to honor to succeed, let what they solicit from the magistrate or the government be simply protection. And I believe that's what we should stand for today. We should only ask for the state to give us protection to worship in peace. We should not be asking for money from the state. He also believed in a separation from Rome and urged his followers to have nothing to do with the friars and is the first person of the major reformers who denounced the Pope as the Antichrist. So he was calling for a separation. Now, who's the most famous reformer? Who? Martin Luther. He's probably the most famous one. This year was the 500th year of the Reformation, the German Reformation. So where did Martin Luther stand on these issues of church and state? It's interesting. In my little, under, little history research, I believe Luther, if, if Wycliffe was ahead of his day, Martin Luther was not as progressed as Wycliffe on this point. Like Wycliffe was, I would say, on this issue, about 400 years ahead of his time. And his views never really got to be reality until this great, great nation became into existence. Like, no country in Europe ever put into effect what this guy wanted. He was, like, too far ahead of European culture. So Luther comes along. Did Luther make some strong um, theological stance? Yes, he did. He did. Made some very strong theological stance. But what did he think about the church? Notice here, here uh, Luther's views on church and state, Dr. Irwin Gain, page 137. He says, Luther's concept of the ministry, the bishopric, the sacraments and the priesthood of believers implies that the church is in no sense superior to the state in temporal matters, nor are the clergy a special class who may justly be exempt from the secular controls to which other Christians are exempt. Luther's kind of a complicated person in some ways. He believed in the priesthood of all believers. He believed in kind of flattening the landscape. He did believe in that. But what he believed and then what he practiced aren't exactly the same thing. So the structure of the German Reformation was such in many ways that it could only advance so far. Reading here, reading on. Uh, although Luther saw it as mandatory, as a mandatory Christian duty for princes to repress rebellion and sedition, in the early years of the Reformation, he argued that they have no right to enforce any particular belief. Their authority is strictly limited to matters temporal. A prince should not force the conscience of any man. Good statement, right? It's a good statement. And we would read that and say, hmm, yeah, that's good. But read kind of a thing where Luther went. Reading on, though, from the same article or book. Luther's theology of the church was therefore in conflict with the political situation which he found himself in. Verduin argues that Luther hesitated to institute the confessional church, which was his ideal, because of the political and social circumstances with which he was confronted. In 1523, and again in 1526, he wrote of his desire for a gathered church of believers, but expressed hesitancy because the people were not ready for it. So it's almost like Luther philosophically agreed with John Wycliffe that the church needs to be separate from the state. But he hesitated going that way because he believed the people weren't ready for such a revolutionary idea. Finally, he settled for the Landeskirk and according to Verduin and Holborn, launched Germany on a course that led to the authoritarian state and the tragedy of Nazism. Now that may be debated by historians but essentially, he never went all the way where he may have theologically believed where the church should be separate, but he went for the Landeskirk or the, the, you know, the, 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 the state church, so to speak. So in Germany, though they moved away from Catholicism, the Lutheran church was still largely under, under the protection of the local different regional princes. 
And it was under their protection that the church was able to flourish and go on. But it was still uh, not a fully correct relationship between the two. Luther was torn between his understanding of the confessional church and the territorial church, or the church on its own and the church connected to the state. As the Holy Roman Church was defeated in Germany, the real victors were the German princes, as they were sovereigns over their territory. And when you read Luther's history and you read about his life, many of the times he was protected by the local princes who protected him in his life and in his mission. Praise the Lord for the German princes. But what it kind of illustrates and shows is that the structure for a full reform of Christianity was not there in Germany. It would have to come elsewhere. The German Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation, was in many ways supported by the princes, the local princes. And in Sweden, you know, Sweden was the first country that officially adopted Lutheran as being the, 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 um, the nationwide religion. They were the first, not Germany. Germany was still kind of more regional then. And in Sweden, as it was adopted, it was supported by the sovereign or the monarch of the nation. Today in Sweden, Lutheran, Luther, the Lutheran church is still the official church of the country. Same in Norway, same in Iceland, Scandinavia. Now, Luther's life, I mean, you can, in Ellen White's book, Great Controversy, there's a great chapter that you can read called The Protest of the Princes. And in that chapter, they do outline in many ways the basis of Protestantism where the church should not have to rely on the support of the state, and there should be some separation between the two, where the state should not be re enforcing um, uh, religious matters and so on. But in many ways, they did not take that all the way that they needed to. These pictures are taken there in Spire, where the council, sorry, the protest of the princes took place. They've got this really great monument there. Luther's in the middle, and then surrounding him in the courtyard of the church, I believe the different princes, as they are photographed. When you think of the Ten Commandments, how many tables of the Ten Commandments do we have? Two tables. The first table, we say, are the commandments one to four. They deal with our relationship with God. The second table of the commandments is commandments five to seven. Sorry, five to ten. They deal with our relationship with humanity, for our fellow human beings. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. But the first four commandments, don't have any goods before me, don't have any gods before me, keep remember the Sabbath, etc., relationship with God. Now the question is, which of these commandments do we as Adventists believe the state has a right to legislate in? Five to ten. The second table. It's okay for the state to legislate, thou shalt not kill, steal, etc. They can legislate the second table, however not the first table. Because the first table is our divine or our relationship with God. But it's interesting when you look at some of the writings or beliefs of the early reformers. They didn't see the delineation between the two tables that you and I as Adventists will see today. And they would just say, the state can enforce, whether they would say both tables, the state can legislate in all matters, not just 5 to 10. They would look at us today and say, why are you guys just saying 5 to 10? Why do 5 to 10? Why not do 1 to 10? Do the whole lot. Now, as Adventists, we understand this difference between the two. First four, next six. And it's something that we need to kind of understand today in contemporary society as well. Many of the early reformers would say that the state has a right to enforce both tables. So even though theologically we look at these reformers like Luther or like Calvin and we say they had some huge theological stance that they made that just shall live by faith and so on, when it came to, in some ways, the structure or the fabric of what the church looks like in the country, they had not advanced as much as they need to. John Calvin, he's often called the international reformer. He was from... Um, born just outside Paris, educated in Paris, grew up in France, but he did most of his great work of his life in the city of Geneva, um, where he lived for a considerable amount of time. 
He impacted a lot of countries. A lot of people came through Geneva and would go back to their countries. He impacted many, many people. John Knox is one of the key ones that he impacted. Um, he relied uh, heavily on the mainstream and middle-class support. And in many ways, his success in Geneva was closely linked to the government in Geneva. And there was times when he left Geneva. There were other times when he came back. He relied heavily, you could say in some ways, for their support and protection from the state. His view, therefore, of what areas the state can legislate in or what areas the state shouldn't was clouded somewhat by this. Reading here from the political theory of John Calvin by George Gatgunis, it says, Calvin sees the church's influence upon the state in terms of the first commandment, the imperative of which encompasses both church and state. Yahweh tolerates no other gods beside him. He demands an exclusive obedience of the whole man and his whole life. This has an immediate impact on all aspects of political life. Calvin's God demands an obedience and that circumscribes not only religious belief and practice, but also every facet of human existence, social, legal, governmental, and political. Now we'd look at that and be like, hmm, that concerns us. Was John Calvin a good reformer, yes or no? He was mixed. He had some very strong stands he took but some of his theological views we don't stand for. But he was overall a great reformer. But his views on this, we would be like, ah, a little bit stuck in the past. That's not where Protestantism needed to go. Did God use him? Yes. Was it where the church needed to finish up at the end? No. John Calvin there. State, both tables. Both tables. Henry VIII, the English breakaway. This guy is a bit of a joker. He really is. He liked himself a bit too much, liked women a bit too much, or changed who he liked a bit too much. Um, he's always pictured wearing this funny dress and leggings. He was king of England. If you know a little bit of English history, he wanted to get divorced from his first wife. She didn't give him a son. So he asked the Pope if he could have a divorce. The Pope wouldn't let him have a divorce, which was political. The Pope wasn't standing for principle. It was just because he was related in somehow to the Queen, didn't want to embarrass her. So the Pope didn't authorize the divorce. He wasn't you know, standing for the Bible. So the king says, well, I just want a divorce. So instead of, uh, he couldn't wait because the Pope wasn't going to change his mind. So he said, okay, if the Catholic Church won't give me a divorce, I will just create a church. It will separate from Rome. I will create a church. I will be the head of the church and I will divorce my wife. And so he did. Now, theologically, Henry VIII basically lived and died a Catholic. He really wasn't... Um, you really wouldn't classify Henry VIII as a Protestant, theologically. The big thing he did, though, was separate from Rome, and that was kind of a huge thing. Even though he did it for personal reasons, it would play out later on to England's benefit in some ways. Um, the act of supremacy in England that he established established the king as the head of the Church of England. And when you look at the English Reformation or the Anglican Reformation, it's different to many other countries. And that the change, uh, England tended to change based on the religious views and convictions of the monarch of the time. So Henry VIII was a Catholic. Then he got divorced and he switched. But even though he switched to the Church of England, theologically he himself remained Catholic. Um, though he was Church of England. It was Henry VIII that killed William Tyndale. Well, he didn't kill him, but he ran him out of the country. So that gives you some kind of idea. Then he was succeeded by his son, Edward VI, the only male heir he had. This was the boy king. He was nine years old. He reigned until he was 15. He was a Protestant. Um, during his time, you had Thomas Cranmer as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Thomas Cran Cranmer had authorized King Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. That's why he liked her, him. Um, he stayed on as Archbishop of Canterbury during Edward VI's reign. Then after Edward VI, there actually should be someone in the middle. It was, she was called the Nine-Day Queen, Lady Jane Grey. So 
She was a cousin of Henry VIII. They wanted to find a Protestant successor, so they made the cousin the queen. Well, that didn't wash, because Mary Stuart, who was the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, gets complicated. She then was, no, I'm not having this cousin being the queen who has no royal blood. I will be queen. So she killed Lady Jane Grey and became the queen. Now, Mary Stuart was the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, who was Catholic. She was very embarrassed and humiliated that her mother got divorced by a Protestant archbishop. So she then killed all the Protestants as revenge for her life as a illegitimate whatever. She reigned for about six years, and during which time she killed 280 key Protestant leaders. Then she died, and we then got Elizabeth I, who was the daughter of the second wife of King Henry VIII. And she was staunch Protestant. And then we had about 50, 40 years or so of Elizabeth I, and England was then kind of, during her reign, stabilized and established as a Protestant country. There were a few flip-flops back and forth in the, in the 1600s, kind of, where Charles I was very cozy with the Catholics. But England kind of went back and forth. Um, uh, so this building here, anyone recognize that building there? Maybe. Yes, no. That is the Tower of London. Doesn't look like much of a tower, but it's the Tower of London. It's part of the Tower of London. There's obviously walls around it, but inside here is part of the Tower of London. It's where they keep the crown jewels. If you go to England on holiday today, you can go and see the Tower of London. It will cost you a cool 25 pounds, which I think is extortionate price. But you can see the Queen's crown and her scepter and all these other things. Anyway, in the 1500s, that went back and forth. There was Protestant prisoners there, then there was Catholic prisoners there, then there was Protestant prisoners, then Catholic, and it kind of went back and forth. The English Reformation was very back and forth. This is the Westminster Abbey. This again kind of changed hands. Today it's established as being a Church of England building, the uh, Westminster Abbey. But if you look at the uh, church in England, they would probably have said that the state can enforce both tables. Now, in the Reformation, there's a term that you may have heard called the Magisterial Reformation. Okay? This was where they believed the magistrate had the right to authority within the church, just as the church could rely on the authority of the magistrate to enforce discipline, suppress heresy, and maintain order. This is from Historical Theology by Alistair McGrath, page 159. He's a professor at Oxford University, very good uh, Protestant theologian. The, pro the magisterial reformation is what summarizes much of the mainstream reformation. Though they made theological stands that were good, the structure, they never dealt with the structure. So they went from having a state-run Catholic church to a state-run Protestant church. It was the radical reformation. If you've heard of the radical reformation, this really is where our heritage lies as Adventists. Yes, we mentioned Luther and Calvin and Knox and these guys, but our real heritage, you could say, lies with these guys that are less named, the Radical Reformation. Who were these guys? These were groups such as the Anabaptists. Anabaptists literally just means rebaptism. Anabaptists were a group of people that came along and said, it doesn't matter if I've been baptized as a child, I need to be baptized as an adult when I make the conscious decision. Hence, it was called Anabaptist or rebaptism. So, they strongly argued against having the magistrates enforce the first table. Strongly argued against. They said the magistrate or the government should have no authority in the first table. Only the second table. Unfortunately, they were heavily persecuted both by the Catholics and the Protestants. And that's kind of a sad blot on Protestant history that the Anabaptists were killed as much by the Catholics as they were by the Protestants. So the Magisterial Reformation would include the Lutheran, the Reform, the Anglican. The Radical Reformation, though, their kind of heritage today would be in groups such as 
Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> no, um, their heritage is kind of in groups like the Mennonites, the Amish. These guys were all Anabaptist roots back in Europe. Um, Menno Simons, the Mennonites, the Amish, and so on. These guys were are kind of the modern continuation. And some of those groups that are kind of stayed within themselves and married within themselves, they literally have a bloodline going all the way back to the Anabaptist in Europe. Um, the Radical Reformation, they would say that the state should only enforce the second table. The first Anabaptist martyr was a man by the name of Felix Mans. He was the first martyr of the Radical Reformation and the first person who was a Protestant killed by another Protestant. Why? They, he lived in um, Zurich, and he believed that Zwingli's reform had been compromised. He said Zwingli, what he's doing is good, but he's compromised because he's linking himself with the city council. And he's compromised on some of his reforms, and he's not going as far as he should just because he wants to keep in good relationships with the state. And so these guys went a step further, and they said, Zwingli, we need to go all the way. And one of the things they pushed for was we need to have adult baptism. Adult baptism in Zurich then became illegal. You could not baptize an adult. It was illegal to have baptism. The Anabaptist movement proved to be a significant forerunner of the modern spirit of relig religious tolerance. Because the church was not coexistent with the state, the latter had no authority to determine sorry, the religion of its subjects. Unfortunately, Thomas Manns, Thomas Manns was sentenced to death and died at the hands of other Protestants in Zurich and they drowned it. They said, hey, you want to be rebaptized? We're going to drown you. And so a lot of the Anabaptists, the, the form of death that the state chose for them was to drown them, which is kind of a little bit of sick humor. So he was drowned. You can go to Zurich today and find the spot where they, they drowned him. And many, many Anabaptists were persecuted and were killed by both Catholics and Protestants. And they saw the difference between the two, the two tables that we would see today. Oliver Cromwell. This is picture is taken outside uh, Westminster. Um, ten down, uh, uh, sorry, the, the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. Oliver Cromwell um, was the leader of England for about, I think it was 11 years. Um, he was Lord Protector of England. You can go inside the Tower of London. And you see you've got Charles I, 1625 to 1649. And then you have Charles II, his son, 1660 to 1685. What was in the middle? Well, somewhere here in the middle is Oliver Cromwell, who ruled for 11 years. For 11 years, England was a republic. And all the Americans said, amen. <laughs> and for 11 years, England had no king. Oliver Cromwell's views on, on the, the nature of a government were well, way ahead of his time. He was going to move to America. Um, some people say he knew Roger Williams. I'm not quite sure if he did, but he was going to move to America. His views on how uh, the state should be were way ahead of England. He tried to bring reform in England. Well, they got rid of the king. They killed him. Um, and he became Lord Protector of England. But the English people never got it. They really didn't get it. They didn't get the idea that the government would run the country and the government's elected. They, they just didn't get the idea. And so when Oliver Cromwell died, there wasn't a system of kind of, they still had the succession system, or they tried, and then his son, who had gone into hiding, came back and the people crowned him king, and England went back to being a monarchy. Um, but Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan. Puritans believed that the Church of England was not reformed enough and needed further purification, and hence they kind of got the name Puritans or Puritanism. Um, there's a difference, though, we don't have time to go into the detail, between the non-separating Pur um, Puritans and the separatists or the dissenters. Which ones kind of came to America? On the Mayflower. It was the separatists or the dissenters. So they're the ones that kind of, on the Mayflower, I think there was 40 of the 100 on the Mayflower were what you would classify as um, separatists or dissenters. But Puritans as a whole weren't very tolerant of those with other religious views. So they had their view as how they wanted the, the, the church or the state to be, but they weren't very tolerant of others. Then you have the Mayflower. The Mayflower comes to America in 1620, the birthing of America. 
This photo here is taken at Plymouth Rock, where you have the stone, 1620. Has anyone here seen that stone? A few of you, some of you have. It's very underwhelming. <laughs> it's not that big at all, but hey, anyway. Did the pilgrims step foot on that rock when they landed? I don't know, but it's a bit of an American history. Um, so these guys, they fled persecution in Britain, okay? They landed in 1620 at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, fleeing persecution. But unfortunately, they didn't really understand the whole idea of religious freedom. They wanted freedom for themselves. But then what would they do if someone had a different view to them? Became a problem. I mean, these pictures are taken. This monument marks the burying ground. They would, you know, the, the first winter, many of them died, unfortunately. They would bury the, the dead at night so that the native Indians or the Native Americans around wouldn't know how many of them had died and how much they were depleted. Um, nearby in Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, there's this statue. Um, National Monument to the Forefathers erected by grateful people in memory of their labor, sacrifice, and suffering for the cause of civil and religious liberty. However, the irony was that they were not very tolerant of others who had different beliefs. Now, does anyone recognize this building? You may not, because it's only the back of the building. This building here is Joseph Bates' home, Fairhaven, Massachusetts. And this is an interesting part of history that I think the early Ad the Adventist Historical Society has just kind of unearthed in the last five years or so. Behind his house is this wall here. Well, what's this wall and why is it significant? It's fascinating because this wall belonged to a house of the son of a man called Thomas Tabor. Thomas Tabor came over on, no, it's not Thomas, yeah, John Cook, sorry. John Cook came over on the Mayflower. He was excommunicated from the first plantation or settlement because he had some different views to the other church members there. He went there to Fairhaven, Massachusetts. His daughter married Thomas Tabor and built the house right behind the home today of Joseph Bates. So it's a fascinating piece of history where you've got kind of the home of one of the founders of Adventism and you've got the home of the daughter of one of the people on the Mayflower. It's like you've got the birth of America and the birth of Adventism next door to each other. So the history has it, or people say that John Cook, who was on the Mayflower, would have warmed his feet by this fireplace in his daughter's house, most likely, because people had cold feet back then. Because um, houses didn't have eating. So that kind of is just like one little kind of story that illustrates to us that all of the reformers, or sorry, all of the pioneers, not pioneers, pilgrims, their view on religious liberty, the journey from 1620 to 1776 was a long and rocky journey. And sometimes we have this romantic view as to what the pilgrims stood for, the pilgrim uh, stood for who came over on the ship. It wasn't as great as we sometimes think. But this guy is a pretty good guy, Roger Williams. Roger Williams started a colony in where? Rhode Island. He started in Rhode Island. In 1635, the Massachusetts Bay Colony expelled Roger Williams for opposing the Puritan Church's control of the civil law. So he's expelled. Where does he go? After his expulsion, Roger Williams settled in Narragansett Bay, where he purchased the land for the Narragansett tribe and established a new colony he called Providence. Williams proclaimed that everyone had the freedom to worship as they choose, government would have no control over religion, and religious ministers would have no power to make or enforce laws. We now call this the separation of church and states. It would go on to say the Rhode Island Charter that no person within the said colony at any time thereafter shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion who does not actually disturb the peace of our said colony. But that all and every person persons may from time to time and at times thereafter freely and fully have and enjoy his own and their judgments and consciences in matters of religious concernments. There are the tract of land, therefore, to theretofore mentioned, they behaving themselves peaceably and quietly and not using this liberty to licentiousness and profaneness, nor to the civil injury or outward disturbance of others. This is more where we stand today, amen? America was on a journey. So you can see kind of like from John Wycliffe who said, we need to separate the church from the state. 
Then you've got the Lutheran Reformation. Then you've got Calvinism. Then you've got the Anglican. Then you've got Puritanism. None of them really got it. It wasn't until America as a nation was founded that you start to have a group of people finally getting this principle that in many ways is the foundation of all freedoms, the separation of church and state, something that I believe today is under threat again. All civil states with their officers and justice in their respective constitutions and administrations are proved essentially civil and therefore not judges, governors, or defenders of the spiritual or Christian state of worship. God requires not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced in every, any civil state which enforced uniformity is the greatest occasion of civil war. Ravishing conscience, persecution of Jesus Christ in his servants and of the hypocrisy and destruction of millions of souls. These guys would say that the state should only deal with the second table, not the first. Some Christians today are calling for the state to enforce both again. Even well-meaning Christians here in America are calling for the government to legislate in areas that the government should not really be legislating in. Um, I believe this is the quote from Roger Williams as well. But who is to decide who truly fears God? The magistrate has no power to enforce religious demands. The laws of the first table of the Ten Commandments are not regulations for a civil society or a political order. They belong to the realm of religion, not politics. What about the Founding Fathers? Where did the Founding Fathers stand? Of America. Because you're all good Americans and you all know your history, amen? Americans are a great country when it comes to knowing their heritage. Amen. I believe in you. Even if you don't believe in yourself. <laughs> you see, it was a long road, as I mentioned earlier, from 1620 to the Declaration of Independence. Does anyone recognize this house here? It's not a great picture. I've forgotten, actually. <laughs> Uh, it's the one just outside. Um, it's Monticello, which was what? Jefferson, right? Jefferson. Jefferson, yeah. Jefferson was one of the people who helped pen the Declaration of Independence. And they believe it was sitting in the room there. That's where they tell you on the tour. Sitting on the room there at a desk, looking out the window over the fields is where he was gazing at the countryside and helped to write it. It was Thomas Jefferson who in 1820 wrote that letter to the Danbury Baptist that you've probably heard or read about, where he used that phrase where we get that, that, that phrase today, the wall between church and state. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or worship, that legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence, that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislator should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. You know, it's interesting. When I got the tour of Monticello, the, guys, the, guy, the guy who gave us a tour was saying that, that Jefferson never wanted to include that in the Declaration. Is that the Declaration of Independence? The, 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 the Bill of Rights. He didn't want to include that phrase make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Jefferson, at least according to the tour guide I had, didn't want to put that in because he believed that was just kind of, um, what shall I say, redundant or just an inherent truth that people should know. Which is why, according to the, the, the tour guide I got, and I haven't really verified this, other people may have read more on it, he said, which is why it's phrased in the negative as opposed to the affirmative. So kind of to make a subtle point, he, he, he phrased it in the negative. They should make no law respecting an establishment or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Anyway, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So where we get the phrase from? Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition 
to his civil duties. This was written in 1820. Obviously, before that, you had the Declaration of Independence that was signed in this building here. If you've had the privilege to go, this is in Philadelphia. It's Independence Hall, and I believe it was somewhere in the room on this side where the uh, Declaration of Independence and later on, I believe, the Bill of Rights that they were signed. And this is the room. You can get a tour. I think you got it. No, it's free. But I think you have to book your tour, um, register, and the tables are there. You can see the bell, the Liberty Bell, is in the museum just opposite the bell that they built, you know, was, was, was rung. And so Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This kind of frames America today, what America stands for still, and where America is. Now today in 2018, you'd say in America there's some kind of tension. On one side, you've got the secular liberals on the left. Um, <coughs> some of them would say that their roots extend back to Thomas Jefferson or the philosophies of the French Enlightenment. Then on the other side in America, you've got the Christian Republicans on the right, which is an uneasy coalition of Catholic groups who want state funding and evangelical Protestants who support the Bible reading in public schools, Sunday blue laws, and religious tests for political office. Their roots would go back to things like Puritan theocrats of New England, the Anglican establishments of Virginia and South, and in many ways it mirrors the magisterial reformation that took place in Europe where there was a close relationship between the state and the church. Some say there's a third group, the dissenting or free Protestants, Baptists, Anabaptists, Quakers, and later on Methodists and Scottish Presbyterians. They were opposed to the state's provision of resources to religious groups and insisted that churches should be free from state oversight or control. This really is where the Seventh-day Adventist view of church-state grew out of. Okay? The third group would have their roots in Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Virginia, New York, the Carolinas, and it grew explosively during the Great Awakening of the 1740s, and by 1776 they were in the political ascendance in most colonies, and they had a huge impact on the framing of the Constitution. However, today, in many ways, I think Americans have forgotten what would kind of be this third group, and people are either harking back to the secular liberalist on one side or the Christian Republicans on the other side and saying that that's the basis of America. Jeffersonian secularism, Puritan Christian Republic, or dissenting Protestantism. Today the battle is really over the first two. And many Adventists are caught on either side of this or this, and I've largely forgotten our true birthright, which is dissenting Protestantism. And neither of the first two positions, I believe, are in line with our heritage as Protestants. The state should say, stay out of spiritual morality, but notions of public safety are directly affected by civil morality, which moral philosophy studied. That's from a book by Nick Miller called The Reformation, The Remnant, page 69. What's moral philosophy? It's something Ellen White spoke about and something we've kind of forgotten in many ways as a church. She said in Education no, uh, 5T, page 521, moral philosophy, the study of the scriptures and physical training should be combined with studies usually pursued in schools. It was the ju judicious use of moral philosophy that allowed Ellen White and other pioneers to advocate for societal moral issues. You know, it's interesting. Early Adventists, as I mentioned in the last presentation, early Adventists were all abolitionists. All, bar none. Ellen White had visions on the Civil War and abolition in churches to deal with some members that still wanted to have slavery. Early Adventists were into the temperance movement. So they were for legislating, for government, I mean advocating for government legislation in, in favor of temperance because they saw the difference between what the government could legislate and what they couldn't. Some Christians today, or some Adventists today, are kind of like the view that the, the church or the Christians should not ask the state to do anything. Well, there are certain things we should ask the state to do. Amen? Like maintain the fabric of society that the second table of God's law outlines. We should ask the state 
to enforce laws not to kill and steal and adultery and so on. Why? Because that maintains the fabric of society. They could do this while still upholding the separation. See, we can still do that while upholding the separation of church and state because we understand the difference between first table and second table. They could do this while upholding the separation of church and state because they distinguish between spiritual and civil morals. To survive the coming religious challenges, Adventists need to learn again to do the same. There's a difference between spiritual morality, first table, and civil morality, second table. We can ask the state to enforce civil morality, table two, but push hard that they stay out of spiritual morality, which is the first table. We are not to just totally disengage from the state that we live in. And I think in some ways as a church, we've kind of lost this edge our early Adventist pioneers, it's interesting, as I mentioned, they were all kind of anti, they were anti-slavery, abolition of slavery. Ellen White herself, she said, you know, don't obey that law. Hide the slave who escapes to your property. You know, she was kind of on the edge on social justice issues in a sense because she saw the difference in the first and second table. And we've got to grapple with that again on different issues today and learn where, where it lies. In many ways, I think the younger generation want to see a church that understands that and knows what those differences are. How do you tell the difference between civil and spiritual and civil morality? Well, we've got the first table and the second table of the Ten Commandments. I think in many ways our church went backward on, on some of these issues in the 1920s or 30s and onwards. You know, some of our Adventist colleges, following our early Adventist pioneers, they were integrated colleges, racially. And we had colleges that were integrated in the 1920s. We were ahead of the curve. Ahead of the curve in America. We had colleges, Adventist colleges, where blacks and whites studied together. Then by the 1930s, we went to segregate. And it's an issue we've struggled with since. Like that, at least I'm kind of speaking from my own views, that I believe should be one issue where we as a church are ahead of society. Like far ahead. Where society looks to us to see what the model is. We've kind of lost that though. We've lost that. I believe the world today wants to see a church that mirrors Christ in all areas. And we can understand the difference between the two. We can understand the separation between first table, second table. Our Protestant heritage, when we look at the past, from Wycliffe all the way through Luther and Calvin and the English Reformation and, and, and um, the Mayflower and the Puritans and, and Roger Williams and so on, we see a progression or a development to where we stand today. America, in some ways, is at a crossroad where there's people, obviously we understand our prophetic understanding of prophecy, where people are going to want to go back to the state enforcing both tables. And we as Adventists need to understand these differences and argue and use whatever means we can to preserve the freedoms that we have, not just the freedoms of us, but the freedoms of others. We should not just be arguing that the state allows us to keep Sabbath, but argue for the freedoms of other people as well. Because when their freedoms go, our freedoms in time will disappear as well. And we need to understand that our freedoms are linked with theirs as well. Reagan said, freedom is never more than one gener generation away from extin extinction. We don't pass it to our children in the bloodstream it must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. The foundation of all freedoms, in many ways, I believe, is the freedom that God gives us through his Bible, religious liberty. But it's something we have to defend. It's something we have to understand. We have a heritage of it going back through the Protestant Reformation. 
The early reformers never, re never really got it, which is why the structure of the reformed church in Germany, England, Switzerland, the structure was not put in place. Even though they made theological advances, the structure was not put in place for a full reform. It wasn't until America was founded where the fabric of society was structured in a way, eventually, that made it right for the birth of the Adventist church. Which is why Europe today is struggling. Official churches relying on the state that have died. The church does not need the state, and the state should not need the church in many ways. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have today to, for many of us, live in a country that still has liberty of conscience. And we see this as a heritage handed down to us from the past that has been fought for, that has been grappled with, and that we have today. May this be something we treasure. May it be something we truly understand. And may it be something that we stand for and fight for. Bless us, Lord, as a people, that we may do the work you've commissioned us to do during this time while we can. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.